Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. G'day guys, welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week on the show, I'm really, really excited for this podcast. Um, loved it, absolutely loved it. I know I say that every week, but I genuinely um, really, really enjoyed this one. We haven't done a, a psychology sort of podcast for a long time. And this is something that I really, honestly, honestly learned so, so much from. Um, he's an incredible man, incredible guy. Very, very lucky to have him in the studio. Now, I know I say that about a lot of guests, but Jonah Oliver, uh, performance psychologist, he doesn't do a lot of this stuff. Um, I'm definitely feeling like you'll hear his name a lot more in the future because this guy is absolutely unbelievable. He's so well-renowned all over the world. He's worked with the Com Games, the Olympics. He works with Cam Smith. Uh, in the golf, which is actually, funnily enough, where I first heard of him when I was over in Scotland. Um, I was meeting a lot of people over there, and they, uh, if they listened to the podcast and they worked in golf, they said, if you interview anyone, if you chat with anyone, if you have a lesson from anyone, you have to have a chat with Jonah Oliver. And um, yeah, he definitely, definitely didn't disappoint. I learned so much in this chat, like I said before. Spoke a lot about um, consistency versus competency, and um, it was really, really cool. I don't even want to spoil the whole show because I seriously... Um, really enjoyed it and don't want to bugger it up because the way he puts things, the way he articulates things and the way he does uh, what he does and obviously helping out athletes all over um, Australia and the world is, is bloody incredible. So I really hope you enjoy this one. Um, make sure you send in a DM or anything or an email if you enjoyed it and loved it. We'll do more of this stuff because I, I genuinely do love this these sort of chats. Um, I'm getting excited, rambling on. Hope you enjoy the show. IllyXX, let's go. Hi fam, it's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. He's like, you can embarrass yourself. And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> I've been in a bad team for 10 years and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect, a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. John Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Thank you uh, again. I really appreciate this. Some might find this a little bit weird, but I I think I have to give context on how first this relationship started. Um, I was over in Scotland for for the golf and obviously very into my golf these days and was infiltrating the Golf Australia headquarters. Like, I don't think... 
we've heard the thing fake it till you make it. And I don't know if you talk about that much in, in psychology. I'm sure you don't. But I, I seriously did that and infiltrated the Gulf of Australia. And every single person I spoke to over there said, you need to get Joan Oliver on your podcast. There you go. Yeah, no, there's some good people in Gulf Australia. Yeah. So it was a fantastic time. And um, the first time I actually laid eyes on you was when Cam Smith had, had finally um, taken home the the Claret Jug. Is that That's it. Called? That's yeah, it. Yeah, the Claret Jug. And you were celebrating, getting some champagne thrown all over you. Obviously played a really big role in that team. Um, and then sneakishly sort of slid into the DMs on um, on the internet. And a few days later, we were having a Zoom meeting while I was in Greece. And I think you were in, back in London. Yeah, yeah. My voice still hasn't recovered. Um, yeah. It was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty special moment. You've um, you've had a fairly big few months, haven't you? You've been over in Europe, obviously, with, with Cam and with the golfers at the Open. But then off to Birmingham as well with the Con Games. Yeah, it's been a big two months. So it started actually in America. Uh, the last two and a half months, I, I met up with Cam. We had a, a week together leading into his British, uh, Scottish and British Open. Uh, then I went up to Seattle and did World Championships with Athletics. Uh, we had a really good campaign there. Then I flew to the British Open, obviously, with Cam. And I had four other golfers there as well. Uh, and then down to, yep, Commonwealth Games. Did some work there. Then into London for a bit of stuff with some Formula One things. And then back to the FedEx Cup. Uh, in America and then finally home. So a big few months. Unbelievable. Um, for those out there who aren't familiar with your work, how would you explain who you are and what you do in, in short terms? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, right? Yeah. So performance psychologist. Um, and what do I do for a living? I keep it cliched and simple. I help people focus on the right thing at the right time. Unbelievable. I like that. It's very clear. It's very concise. It's actually funny, isn't it? We can never really we can never really portray what we do in short sentences. Like I, I struggle with that. It's like an elevator pitch. Mm. We'd probably come back to our values later and our and our why. Is that what that is? Yeah. Well, I just well, I I, I love simplicity. Yeah. I, I think that's part of what I try to bring to my clients is taking complex psychological theory and simplifying it so they can digest it and implement it. But really, you know, I, I don't make people more talented. Mm. My job is just to help them get out of their own way often and let their talent shine. So, you know, what, what's that about? Well, it's task-focused attention. If you can focus on the right thing at the right time, your talent can then shine. So really it's just about doing what you often do in training and then can you do it in these different contexts where there's a whole bunch of noise, pressure, you know, the occasion's different. Mm. When an athlete or, or a business or a team or a coach like elicits your services and they come to you and say, Jonah, we need, you know, some support, yeah. what are they – normally come to you with and what do they expect or what do they think that they're going to get help with at the start? Yeah, well, that's a complex question. I guess it depends if it's a deficit model or not. So some people come with a deficit. Yeah. I don't perform well with pressure. We don't seem to play well in finals. We, you know, it's, there's something that's getting in the way. Others will come and say, look, functioning quite well, but we've heard you've helped people, you know, climb the ladder of their world rankings or mm -hmm. win world championships or whatever it is. So it's just a, a pure performance enhancement sort of model. Uh, and then my job is just to reverse engineer that, right? Just work with them about what are we actually getting after? You know, like I always say, ambiguity is the enemy here. Let's be really, really specific on what we're chasing. And then work backwards from that and then look at what's getting in the way. Mm. You know, what's getting in the way. And sometimes it's really granular, right? Like it's, if I can help my golfers, you know, one shot around, at the, at the pointy end of the thing, that's that's 50 in the world to top 10 in the world, right? So sometimes it's just chasing a little bit around, you know, their, their, their wedge game or their putting or something and that, that's the biggest lever that then brings the improved performance. If it's a really complex systems like a, a, a large organisation or, you know, you're working with an exec team 
or you're working with the football club where there's, you know, lots of moving pieces of the puzzle, you need to spend some time to really diagnose that effectively about what's getting in the way and then what levers do we need to pull there? Is, is there, I suppose, a misconception maybe sometimes of what people think they need versus what they actually need in, in these circumstances? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a pretty human, um, thing to do. Right. Um, I'll go to the dentist and say my tooth hurts. I know that. I don't know what's required to stop it hurting or yeah. fix it. That's the dentist's job, right? So that's sort of the approach I take. Like they'll, they'll come and they'll be able to generally identify their pain points. You know, this gets in the way. We don't play well when we're in finals. Well, this is the problem when I'm trying to close out a, a round of golf when I'm in the lead. Or You know, they can normally identify a lot of their pain points and they've probably tried a whole bunch of things to try to fix it. And then they're realizing that what they're doing isn't leading to the outcome they want. So then my job is to work with them about maybe trying some different options. Love it. Sure. So the reason I ask that question is something that I really love. Um, you know, after listening to a lot of your work and what you've been able to say, something that resonated with me the most in that is confidence versus competence. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if I'd have known this 10 years earlier and, and maybe looked into this a little bit, things could have been very different in my sporting career. Yeah. Um, you have to talk about that because I, I still really, yeah, sure. really love to understand it and how much I think that this is just a it's such an easy, tangible thing to get our heads around in sport yeah, sure. and business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the most common thing I get asked to help with. Jonah, can you help me with my confidence? Or I'm struggling with low confidence. Or a coach will say, Jonah, can, you know, these guys aren't confident enough. And it's like this obsession with confidence because the belief is if I feel confident, I'll play well. Whereas what they're really saying is they want competence. Now, what's the difference? Confidence is an emotion. I'm feeling a certain way or as competency is a behavior, I can do something. And, and I, I use playful metaphor, right? Me at a karaoke bar with six beers in my belly, I'll jump up on that stage and I cannot sing. <laughs> Doesn't matter how confident I am, I can't sing, right? Yet there's plenty of people out there who have amazing voices, but they're too caught up in their story to get up on stage and sing, right? I'd much rather have somebody who's actually competent singing at my wedding than somebody who's confident, who's probably my best man and butchers <laughs> it, right? So, you know, in life, in sport, we've got to focus more on bringing people's competencies out and not, real, not, not searching for this idea that we have to be confident before that can happen. You know, confidence actually follows competence, you know, do you want a confident team or a competent team? Oh, John, we need both. No, no, I'll give you a choice point. Which one do you want? A competent team or a confident team, right? Of course, most coaches then get it and go, well, we we'll just want them to be competent, right? I, I even be more playful when clients say, Jonah, can you help me with my confidence? I say, tell me what it looks like. I'll do an Etch-A-Sketch and put up some posters around the neighbourhood. I'll go searching for your confidence. Can you just go out there today and just do what you normally do at training? Just, you know, just repeat the behaviours that you're really good at and I'll meet you at the end of the game and, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. And, of course, they, you know, come at the end of the game and, oh, Jonah, I found my confidence halfway through the game. Oh, wonder why, you know, connecting to competence. But even athletes and coaches get their language wrong. Mm. Mate, you played really well out there today. Yeah, yeah, I was just super confident. It's like the ball doesn't know what you're thinking and feeling. You swung the club head through the ball square. You kicked the ball between the sticks. You put your head over the ball. You, you, know, you behaved competently, but then we use the wrong language and we say we're really confident and then we unintentionally go searching for it again and again and again because we think that the reason we played well was because we felt confident versus mm. we displayed competent behaviours. If I can just connect to my competence and let go of my attachment to needing to feel confident, then I'm now much more likely to be consistent. 
because there'll be days, no matter who I am, where I feel great. There'll be days where I feel crap. There'll be days where I feel in between. There'll be days where I feel doubtful, worried, anxious, angry, the usual tapestry of being a human. But if I just come back to my competencies, then I can repeat behavior more, you know, more predictably. And all of a sudden I build up a, you know, a pattern of behavior and I've got some form and whatever story I want to create around it. And I've had a consistent season because I'm behaving competently and consistently whilst being emotionally normal and human, which means highly varied at times. And that doesn't matter. I love it. I think that's the episode done. <laughs> that's, it's such a good message. And I think listening to that, I was like, fucking hell, there's so many times where you go into it. Even today, you know, I sit down and um, we talk about nerves or anything mm. like that. Like I was like, oh, you know, I've got Jonah coming today. He's obviously a very smart guy. He talks all of these things. It's not something that I normally do get into these sort of intellectual discussions where it's, you know, talking high mm. level stuff. But I was like, you know what? I am competent at doing this. Like I've, I do this every week. I sit down, have a conversation. I listen to what people have to hear, uh, what to say. Sorry. I don't have to come with the answers. I'm just mm. like there to listen and give my experience and, and what's there to give. And straight away I was like, oh, fuck, I feel a bit more confident about it. So I, yeah, I couldn't agree more on, on, on that. And I think it's probably one of the biggest things I struggled with as, as an athlete, a young guy trying to perform. It was always like, I don't feel good today. Mm. I don't think I can have a good game. I don't feel good. It's like, I've done this so many times before. Like yeah. I've done it so many times before. And there's a big learning one day where I wasn't feeling good. In the warm up, I was like, I nearly, I was about to have an anxiety attack, like literally about to go and fake an injury. I was like, I need to get out of this game. Like I need to get out of this game. I'm going to like, just maybe say that I did my hammy on something so I can get out. Ended up playing and it was played the best game I've ever played. And in my head, I was like, that was like a little win for me going like, wow, it shows that you do not have to feel good to go out there and perform. Yeah, absolutely. And great sharing and realness and vulnerability mm. there, right? And I think a lot of people listening could probably relate to that. Mm. Um, you know, firstly, we worry about things we care about. So naturally, we're going to have anticipatory anxiety. Anytime we're doing something that matters, we'll be nervous prior to it. We then get angry when we're not living up to our standards during it, and then we'll feel sad with the realisation we didn't you know, play to our potential or something. So I call it the athlete triad. Anxiety before an event anger and frustration during it and then sadness afterwards. Mm. And, you know, most athletes probably listening or humans can can relate to that experience, right? Um, And then on top of it, a little bit of neuroscience, we're correlational beasts. So our brains just crave correlation, not causation. We're not very good at actually going Mm. that causes that. We correlate. We say that happened and that happened, therefore – you know, the two must, you know, coexist. For example, I felt nervous and I didn't play well. Well, mm. we then, when nerves show up again, we go, oh, that's going to mean I'm not going to play well again. But there's, that's correlation. There's no causation. What happens is when we're nervous and we believe nerves are bad because our coach said, believe in yourself, be positive, calm down. Or we've read a self-help book that said that. <laughs> calm you know? down, yeah. um, we then try to get rid of those nerves and fail. We then get, you said panic attack, we then get into this thing called a metacognition, which is the worry of worry or the fear of fear or the judgment of feeling anxiety. So we're sitting there pregame, getting nervous, going, "Uh uh-oh, can't feel this way. We then try to get rid of our nerves and fail, which then sets us on fire. So then what's happened is all of our focus is on how we're feeling and our failed attempt to change it, which is what you were describing pregame. And that's why we suck. Not because we were nervous, because our focus is on the wrong thing. Our focus is in our head, on our anxiety, on our attempt to get rid of it, 
on our thoughts, on those thoughts aren't good, those thoughts aren't bad. And all of a sudden we're in this, you know, we're in the porridge. Whereas if we can free ourselves up from that and realize I can still play, you know, normally, competently and do my thing whilst feeling the anxiety, then you're freed up and you've broken that, you know, that correlational sort of relationship. So, yeah, and that's a bit of a long spiel, but the brain, you know, it goes right back to evolution. You know, you know we, we sit under a tree, eat a red berry and drink some water and we get sick. Our brain goes, well, I don't want to go back and test whether it was the water, the berry or the mm. tree. Let's just not drink the water or berry or tree again. You know, it's safer, keeps me alive. So our brain's almost very protective and prone to anxiety. So it just looks for any potential correlation, which is also where superstitions come from. You know, you, you had a blue Powerade and you played well or you wore your lucky jocks and then all of a sudden if I don't wear my lucky jocks, something bad will happen and all of a sudden you're paralysed by a whole, you know, that's a whole other podcast on superstitions. So I feel maybe superstitions is something you try and break away from straight away. 100%. Yeah, yeah. How do we, how do we, um, how do you, sorry, then treat that or treat or work with an athlete or a team if that is their circumstance. So say for example, like me or a lot of athletes out there, you do have those triggers and you're, you're, you're correlating um, nerves to bad performance. What's the first thing you'd sort of do to try and shift that in your mindset? Yeah, that's a good question. You, you want to fundamentally flip the relationship to nerves and anxiety, right? Yeah. So you've got to debunk the mythology of it. And we're, we're moving towards what's called more of an acceptance-based model. So if you want to do hard things, there's a price of entry and that might mean you feel some anxiety, some nerves, some pregame, you know, uncertainty. Our brain hates uncertainty. It craves, you know, craves wanting to know, which is why we shake the Christmas present and things, you know, we, we, <laughs> what's the old saying? Humans would prefer the, the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. Literally. Right. Um, so you know, I sit down with, with, with my clients and sort of say, let's look at what you've been doing for however long and how's it been working for you? You firstly just got to reverse engineer the workability. And do we agree that if you want to keep going down this rabbit hole, we're probably going to end up with the same outcome. So would you be open to exploring things differently? And learning to just make room for that discomfort, you know, perfectionism, obsessionality. You know, there's some really good adaptive things from that. It means you, you're driven, you're motivated, you work hard, you have high standards. So there's some really good things that come from it, but it also can be debilitating when, you know, it becomes maladaptive and you get too caught up in the fears of failure and the stories that show up. Mm. So acceptance, what does that mean? Learning that feeling tough internal experiences is normal, it's okay, and it doesn't have any impact on my performance if I can just let it be there. So growing your capacity to actually sit with more discomfort, not getting rid of it and we call them control strategies, calming down, being positive, not feeling muscle tension, not feeling negativity, not having that thought, like it's all control strategies versus going, hey, how about we just free up and just let the brain be a brain firstly because it's going to do that for the rest of your life and it doesn't matter. Matter of fact, what's more important, feeling good or playing good? trying to get rid of your nerves or letting them be there, focusing on the right thing at the right time and getting after what's important to you. Mm. So I really try to help my clients let go of their relationship to their internal content and learn that part of being human is we have a rich tapestry of hopes, dreams, doubts, worries, and that's okay. And this idea that I have to be in this really fixed psychological state in order to perform well is absolutely garbage. Mm. You have to be in a in a state of focus and connected to the behavioral outputs that you're required to do and what allows that typically to happen, not getting caught up and hooked by my stories around 
you know, what's going on for me. Well, it's, it's exhausting. It's <laughs> absolutely exhausting. Totally. I, I've, uh, everyone listening to this today that's been in business life, anything, you know, you always narrate this story around what a perfect day for you is. You know, you wake up, yep. you feel fresh, the sun's out, you know, it's not raining. You do have your favorite jocks. You have a good breakfast. You go to the game. The coach loves you and you go out and you have 30 and you kick five and, you know, everyone loves you, which I love the story of what, um, towards the back end of my career, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it was more around, um, embracing when things aren't and sort of like almost trying to change it up each week, having uncertain things happen and putting yourself in situations, even in training, um, to prepare yourself for, for match day when things don't go right. Mm, mm, do you do that a lot with athletes? Like that sort of at, at training, you know, like train at a level and maybe try and have things that aren't right on game day to sort of get ready for the big dance? Yeah, well, firstly, there's a, well, there's a couple of things there you said which mm. are really interesting. Competition is an ordinary performance on a special day. I'll say that again. Competition is just an ordinary performance on a special day. Mm. And that's how I help AFL players, Olympians, racing car drivers, UFC fighters, surgeons, business leaders. It doesn't matter. It's understanding that my job is to train at a level that's at the level of, of what's the sport demands or even beyond. So then I can show up when it really matters and just replicate. Uh, you know, the tyranny of the lift is one of the biggest things I debunk, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of coaches maybe listening who, you know, <laughs> in that locker room, try to fire up the team, you know, all right, today we've got to lift today. We're going to dig deep and find it's like, <laughs> you're telling them what we've done in training so far isn't good enough. And you need to go. Out there bigger. And do, yeah. You got to go out and do something different. Um, but we haven't trained for that, by the way, boys, but all, all the best, off you go. It's like, what? Versus, okay, guys, are we clear? Any questions? Today's, a, you know, we replicate what we've been working towards. Great. Let's go. There'll be a bit of crowd out there. It's pretty special. It's a prelim. Like, I imagine we're all pretty nervous and excited, and that's okay. But remember, all we have to do today is replicate what we're here to do. Replicate what got us into the prelim. Replicate, you know, your role. And that creates clarity connection to competence and away you go. So, you know, to your question about do you need to um, train for adversity, I think you need to look for training drills and skills and things that at least create the noise of normal performance. I don't really like, you know, golfers just sitting on the range hitting, you know, balls off perfect lies with, you know, no wind and, you know, mm. like that's not golf, right? I think 25% of the time you're not in the fairway and regulation in, yeah. at the very best in the world. So are 25% of your shots on the range sitting in the first cut of the rough? Don't see a lot of that on tour. Not my golf. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, it's really, so obviously we spoke before about being at, well, yeah, all the competitions, the British Open um, with the Com Games as well specifically. Yep. With athletes, say track and field athletes, they get a comp every, you know, two years or four years where they're training their whole time yep. under probably – you know, it's hard to sustain that motivation for four years and then you get to this pinnacle of your sport. And I think I already know the answer in this, but what separates the ones that perform on those stages and they embrace it mm -hmm. versus the ones that maybe get there and get overawed by a situation? Yeah, they're really boring. Really boring. That's my playfulness. I say go out there and be really boring. Just normal, boring, same. They get to those big occasions and they're emotionally not the same. It, mm. it matters. It's the Olympics. They know it's their once-in-a-lifetime event. Uh, and to your point, yeah, they compete you know, far frequent, less frequent than other sporting codes. 
So there's an extra story around that, and there's an extra magnitude of mm. the, the the you know fear of failure and you know all the trimmings. But the mindset that we work on is the ability to go out there and just be normal, replicate, almost be boring, and by pursuing nothing special, adrenaline, the occasion, whatever, often sucks you along, and you might break your PB or the world record or whatever that is. But you don't do it by pursuing it. You go out with a very clear mindset of we've trained, we've replicated, you know, high reps and, you know, and now let's just go out there and do that in this scenario. Now, think about what I said, an ordinary performance on a special day. Don't try to deny the specialness of it. Oh, just pretend it's training. No, it's not training. It's the Olympics. You can't lie to your brain, Mm -mm. right? So I'm going to be really excited and nervous and worried and hopeful and doubtful and may, may not have slept well and don't want to eat breakfast that morning because I've got, you know, butterflies. Like, come on, let, let's get ready for the specialness, which means we've got some stories and there's some context. But what do I bring to that? My best, which is my normal. So I go out there and I'm really connected to the replication of my skill and that's your safety blanket. I don't then need to fight my nerves or fight my brain or control what's going on intrinsically. I just anchor to my performance. Do you encourage routines? I know that's something that's been drilled into athletes again for, for a long time and the same coaches that say, you know, go out on a day and do something that you've never done before. Routines is something that nearly every young kid coming through will get taught that you need to have going into something. Do you believe in routines? Yeah, it's a great question. I get asked it a lot. Um, you just have to look at the function of it. Why do we suggest having some sort of rhythm or routine in your performance? It's so you free up your attention to focus on the right thing. We all wake up and do a rhythm and a routine. I guarantee everyone listening woke up and generally puts the same foot on the floor. You normally then have a shower and brush your teeth or then have your coffee. Like we're very routinized animals. And the reason we actually do that is we, it frees us up not to have to think about oh, do I brush my teeth now or do I eat breakfast? Like (laughs) you just, right? You just follow it so you can think of other things. So we bring in routines for athletes to free them up so they can just focus on executing the task at hand. I see this obsessionality with routines where it then becomes the distraction. I have to do one breath and then hold things for 3.2 seconds, then take one little step, then touch my left thigh and then that's not a routine. That's a bloody superstition virtually. And it's actually distracting you from engaging in what you need to do. So you have to be so careful when you're doing routines that it's serving a purpose to enhance task-focused attention, not actually becoming a source of distraction. I'm so focused on my pre-kick routine that I haven't actually looked at my target and thought about kicking the ball, you know, through the sticks. And all of a sudden you wonder why your kicking percentage goes down. Like, because the kicking coach said, we've got to have more routines. Uh, how about we just get better at kicking a, kicking a football and use some rhythms and stuff that's relatively similar so we can just engage in the task at hand. Would you think that that's like nearly one of the biggest misconceptions that athletes would hear and go, wow, like I didn't realize I was doing that. What's something that people, you know, in, in business or sport, they come to you and go, no, no, this is actually good for me when you go, well, no, it actually isn't. Well, that's a long list. Uh, what are the things that people <laughs> – oh, wow. Uh, they come in, they think this is a one thing that like, I know is good for me, but 
in real estate, you can break it down. Like, no, it's actually not, which is very common. There's been so many things where I'd think, oh, no, it's good for me to do this. You know, I, the routine one, for example, is, is a huge one. I'd get in these routines like, every week after the same thing. Thought it was good. It was actually exactly doing. I was, I was. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not avoiding the question. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just there's hundreds <laughs> because of the function of what they're doing. Mm. So I have clients who come through and say, Jonah, I meditate an hour every day. I do journaling every day. I do ice water plunging every day. I do goal setting and every day, whatever. And I'm like, okay, like, is that serving a helpful function? Now, if the answer is yes, it is. It allows me to make space for what's going on, learn from it, get perspective, make some improvements, put a plan in place. Okay, great. That's, that's helpful. But if it's actually just being done because you've seen somebody else do it, you went along and heard somebody give a speech and they said they did it. So you went, oh, I better, like, it's just, it's junk. It's not serving any purpose in your life. You're doing it because you're hoping that maybe it's like some magical source that will lead to some outcome versus actually serving a real mechanism in your, you know, your life in the pursuit of high performance. So I know it's a bit of a broad answer, but it's, it's what's the function of it, you know, like, you know, um, you know, I, I like meditation and breath work or if it's using, if it's enhancing your task focus attention by, you know, strengthening your prefrontal frontal cortex. Mm. If it's, I'm just trying to run away from anxiety and I don't like stress. So I do my breath work cause it gets rid of my stress. And I'm like, don't you have to do a stressful job by definition? So why are you running away from stress? Don't we need to learn to grow and embrace more? So then all of a sudden you're doing something that's actually making you worse. So for one person doing meditation, it's really useful. For another person, it actually might be making them worse. You've got to understand the function of what they're doing. So that's a really, really interesting point, which I think that is, you know, I've been guilty of, of this as well um, in terms of we can get down a path sometimes where we, if something's good for us, we try and promote it for everyone. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, gratitude, a lot of these things are, are very prevalent at the moment, which is great. Like I, I love doing that. But I know from hearing that now that might actually not be good for you. You've got to work out what's actually best for you in that circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I like exploring values, right? Like let's find out who you are, what really matters to you, and, and then get after that. Let's pursue a life of something that really is meaningful for you. And what's the expression of those values? It might be how you express it on a golf course or a footy field or in surgery or in the, in the business you know, sector. But once you truly understand who you are and then start to architect your life and do things that really serve that and bring it to life, all of a sudden you'll probably have some really good rhythms and routines and habits, but they're yours and you own them and they help bring you to live a life that's the best version of yourself, not I'm doing it because I saw somebody on the footy show so they did it. Yeah. Um, the, a huge question, which is is on that before we get into the value stuff, is around with mindfulness, breathing, and I'm, there's incredible strategies for this, as we said. But a lot of that I've heard you say are short term fixes. Yep. So they're there's something to make you feel better in the moment. There's a strategy to like you know bring your cortisol levels down and yep. you know f- feel more relaxed. Yeah. But for the, for that long term um, effect of being able to like you said be in the moment, actually embrace stressful situations that more long-term fix of actually embracing it. How do you go about that? Is it literally just sitting down with a professional? Is it, again, going to your values, working out what's best for you? Okay, there's a couple elements to that question. Um, So firstly, we need to understand this concept called experiential avoidance. Okay, humans are really good at experientially avoiding, meaning when discomfort shows up in us, we we typically have to do something quite quickly to get rid of it. 
You know, if I drop a snake here in the studio, you're going to probably have some anxiety and you're going to want to run out of the room. That's you avoiding that experience and you feel calmer when you're outside of it and your brain says that's a good thing to do and that pattern gets reinforced, okay? It's like um, if we went to a cocktail party and I was eating one of those canapes and had spinach in my teeth and given you're a good bloke, you'd come up and say, hey, Joan, i just let you know you've got some spinach in your teeth. I'll say, oh, thanks. But then being the budding young psychologist, I'd say, I'm going to go back to the last three people I spoke to and say, excuse me, when I chatted to you, did I have spinach in my teeth? And let's say they say, yes. I say, why didn't you tell me I had spinach in my teeth? And do you know what the most common answer is? It's embarrassed. Or... I didn't want to make you feel bad. Yeah. I didn't want to make you feel awkward. I didn't want to embarrass you. I don't know. I figure you might find it yourself. I don't know. Like, <laughs> and I say, you liar. Like, what? No, I didn't. I didn't want to make you feel bad. I said, you're lying. You didn't want to feel bad. Mm. You went to say something. And just as you're about to maybe say, oh, I better tell this guy, you felt that awkwardness and you went, oh, he'll work it out. Somebody else will tell him and you avoid, right? And this happens in every day in our lives. We don't tell a colleague what we really think. We don't give a performance conversation to a staff member because we don't want them to think we're a bad boss or we don't want them to cry or we don't want them to complain to HR or whatever. We, we don't give feedback to our partners about something that really grinds our gears or I don't know, like everywhere in life. Somebody brings you a sandwich at a cafe and it's got tomato that's made the bread soggy and there's a whole bunch of your listeners who just eat it and not send it back even though you're paying good money for it Like because we don't want to feel the discomfort of whatever shows up when we go to do that, right? So humans are quite poor at experiential avoidance. So a lot of the work we need to do is learning to say, well, okay, maybe I don't care if my bread soggy with some tomato. That's why I didn't really say anything, Jonah. I say, yeah, but what about things that you do care about? Do you care about your career? Do you care about, you know, being the best version of yourself on that footy field or the golf course? Or do you want to be the surgeon that you've spent years training to be? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, well, then let's look at what we have to get out of the way of and stop experientially avoiding. So that's really fundamental, firstly. Mm. The reason I had to go down that rabbit hole prior to talking about mindfulness, meditation, what have you, is again, a lot of people use, let's call it breath work, for experiential avoidance. I'm feeling really stressed out, so I'll do some meditation. I get rid of my anxiety and tension. I feel better. And you're like, yeah, Joan, it felt great. I say, you have just reinforced the relationship that stress is bad. And that when it shows up, you need to get rid of it. So if you're only sort of doing your breath work as a way of trying to get rid of that discomfort, you're actually making yourself weaker because you're feeding that story that when stress is there, I must get rid of it. Whereas if you want to build your capacity to take on more challenges in life and do harder things, you've got to lean into that. You've got to be willing to sit with discomfort. So this is where we'll get a little bit technical. Mm. Mindfulness is different than meditation, especially transcendental meditation. Mindfulness is simply noticing things on purpose, non-judgmentally, which is bloody hard, right? Not drinking that water and going, oh, that's lovely and cold. It's just noticing the temperature of the liquid going down my throat. It's doing a breath and just feeling the chest move and contract and just noticing it. That's all. I'm not trying to breathe in the good and breathe out the bad. I'm not trying to calm myself down. I'm not trying to get into this Zen zone of flow and deep whatever. 
I'm just training up effectively my prefrontal frontal cortex to be better at focusing. And so I'm very particular with all my clients around doing work that grows the focus area of your brain. I've never had an athlete or a client say, you know, Joan, I'm good for focus. I don't need more. Like they all want to be able to focus more. And I say, well, you know, you can do bench presses for focus. We know enough about neuroscience. Just do three minutes of mindfulness three times a day. And after six weeks, you can do an fMRI of the brain and you can see the changes in the neural architecture. So let's just get after it, right? And we don't need to go doing these other things that might feel good, but actually in the background might actually make us weaker. You know, it's a bit like a cigarette. Feels good in the short term, kills you from cancer. There's a lot of stuff we do that helps us experientially avoid. The, the deep breathing before the game, you know, oh, it feels a bit better, but how'd that go for you? Well, then the anxiety came up as soon as I stepped over the line. You know, the, the positive self-talk, mm. which then the negative self-talk just comes straight back and you're like in this you know, battle, like a short-term relief, but leads to long-term distraction versus just learning to, to sit with discomfort and noise or whatever shows up make room for the discomfort and be really clear in what you're there to do. KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Incredible. When, you, when you're in that discomfort, because yes. I think everyone knows what that feels like. You know, I've been there a lot. I'm doing situations in my life at the moment where something really clicked before when you said about you'd nearly rather the certainty of dissatisfaction. Certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. Literally. Like yeah, I yeah. can relate to that so, um, so strongly. But sitting in that discomfort when you don't have an answer and you've got to, you've got to just sit there. Um, sometimes it's inevitable. You can't actually make yourself feel better, which is sometimes actually nearly in a way good because you can, you don't have that short term fix. You actually have to learn to sit there and not be able to, to fix it. You just have to get comfortable with it. What is a way that you can get more comfortable being uncomfortable? Yeah. Wow. What a good question. Um, I think you stress is a good thing. Yeah. So identify it firstly being like, look, I am uncomfortable. Is that what that is? Well, self-awareness is the key to all of it. Right. So if, if you're not aware of the discomfort, you will naturally avoid it. Yeah. You'll do something. So it's yeah. like calling it out at what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Like if you're not aware you're feeling dis, you know, un, you know, uncomfortable in a team meeting, then you're just not going to answer a question because you won't want to be vulnerable and be wrong and put your hand up. So you'll just sit there quietly, right? You'll just avoid. But if you're aware it's there and you're like, hang on, I don't actually understand what's going on in this sort of thing. So therefore I need to put my hand up because I said I want to be a really great teammate and not let the others down and whatever, whatever. So I'll let the discomfort be there, but I'll put my hand up and ask the question anyway. That self-awareness is critical to it all. But to your point around how do you build it, firstly, you've got to understand, am I willing to feel it, Mm. right? Like if I put a whole bunch of broken glass on your studio floor and said, let's do some motivational walking, come on, you know, you want to take your shoes off and it's going to cut your feet and you're going to end up with stitches, it's going to hurt, but, you know, you're keen, man. I imagine you'd give me some expletives and tell me where to go. If you asked me to, I'd do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt you would. But if I said, hey, listen, walk across that same broken glass, but at the end of it, 
I'll guarantee everyone you care and love for will have a life free from harm and suffering and all your dreams, hopes and aspirations will come true. But you're going to have a couple of weeks of having some sore feet. Would you be willing to walk across the glass? Sure. Right. So what does that show? It shows that humans are a shit at pointless pain. We don't do anything if it involves pain and there's no purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. But if we connect to something of meaning, we'll endure great hardship. It's not how painful something is. It's how important something is. And we spend too much of our life trying to take away the pain before thinking we can then act in the right way rather than dialing up our connection to the importance. The the, the other example I use is if I'm playing basketball in the street with my kids and the ball rolls onto the road and a car comes, I'm letting the car hit the basketball. If my daughter runs out to try to get the ball, I am running in front of that car and I don't care if that car kills me. I don't care if it breaks every bone in my body and I'm in immense pain. I don't even stop to really connect to, oh, is it going to be painful? How much pain? Like, I don't care how much pain because of how important she is to me. And that's how I help people break world records, climb Mount Everest, do things that are really hard. We connect to the meaning and importance behind it and that's when you tap into, you know, what looks like motivation but really it's just connecting to importance. Incredible. That's got to be on your website, I reckon. That <laughs> We're going to cut that clip up. That was fantastic. Um, is that take us to our why and our values? Is that a good lead into that? Yeah, absolutely. Talk us through that because it's something that we, you know, I, I've been guilty of, of writing down values and, you know, putting them in my locker and going, fantastic, just did my values. There they are. It's, you know, <laughs> being, you know, fun and yeah. everything. Yeah. But then never visiting it again. Of course. What? How do you go about this when identifying an athlete, businessman, businesswoman, person? What's what's the process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool question and a, and a pivotal piece of work. Yeah. Right. So we know the science says that if you're going to pursue values work, that you'll actually end up with some competitive advantage and you'll lead – it leads to lasting behavior change. You don't have to do it. I mean, we've all got values. Every human being on planet Earth has values. You, some just haven't taken the time to maybe, you know, put some words around it or whatever. But it's really about taking the time to connect to the things that are, you know, that you value and of value and the values within it. So you need to understand a few things when you're doing values work. Firstly, you want to separate what you value from a value. And some people get that a bit mixed up, right? I value... Friends, family, health and fitness, learning, growth, adventure, like they're things I value, okay? So they're things that are important to me. My career is important to me. My family is important to me. But then my values are who I am deep down in my heart and how I want to be in those domains. For me, it's mastery, curiosity, playfulness and value. You know, they're the things that I really identify for. In my corporate business, you know, one of my key values is margarita pizza. Don't create meat lovers crap, you know, three ingredients that just you drive across town to buy, you know. <laughs> um, so values can be really playful, right, as long as that evokes the right thing. Um, and so it's then how do you want to be in any given moment? I want to be loving. Yeah, well, you can be loving one moment and then be a real prick to your partner 
You are no longer being loving. So a value is transient. It's momentary. It's a behavior. It's not anything other than how you act in any given millisecond, which is why it takes a lot of work to constantly connect to them. But when you do and then you define them behaviorally, it's freedom because you just have a roadmap. If I say, okay, um, I remember working with a, one of my best examples I share is when I was working with a UFC fighter and I was exploring his values with him. And he had some of the more stereotypical ones of, you know, hard work and this, that. And I'm like, well, is that a value or is that an outcome? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, do you wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to bring hard work to the world? He's like, yeah, no, no. I said, what do you want to bring to the world, you know? And we went on this journey of finding there was actually curiosity and, and um, playfulness and uh, in the fighting domain, combativeness. He really loved being the warrior and dialing up some of that stuff and that only was within that one domain, thankfully. It wasn't in other areas of his life. And then I said, tell me a bit about what you actually love about fighting. I was getting ready for the UFC fight here in Melbourne at uh, Etihad Stadium. It was a huge crowd, right? Massive one. And he said, oh, it's like, it's almost like being naked. And I was like, okay, uh, nakedity is a bit of a weird value. Um, and I said, I said, okay, like I, I can sort of get what you mean. He's like, mate, it's, there's hardly any rules. You're in a cage and it's almost like sort of a bit of a fight to death sort of mentality you got to take in there. And he goes, I just feel so naked and I'm so exposed and raw. And I was like, man, I can't, I can't even imagine how vulnerable that must feel. And he's like, oh, I love that word, vulnerability. That's, that's yeah, wow, I really want to use that. That just resonates. And I was like, okay, well, let's play around with what that looks like. So no longer just a word. What does that look like? So then I sat down with him and his coach and said, tell me a bit about when he's not fighting well, what goes wrong? And when he does fight well, what does it look like? And this guy was a, 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 a brawler. Like he wasn't a, a jiu-jitsu ground guy for those, you know, for the, in UFC there's, there's, the, there's the wrestling choking mm-hmm. and then there's the sort of stand-up boxing, right? He is best when he stands close to his opponent and is in the pocket throwing punches, but also means he's getting punched in the face and his teeth are breaking and bones are breaking and all the usual stuff that comes with it, right? So when he wasn't fighting well, he'd stand further away. He'd experientially avoid. I don't want to get hit. So I'll stand a bit further back. He'd then, you know, run around the ring a fair bit, get fatigued. Opponents would then take him to the ground and choke him out and he'd lose the fight. I said, right. So what does vulnerability look like then when you're fighting well? He goes, yeah, being vulnerable to stand closer to my opponent. So here we are using what people might think is a really soft, whatever value of vulnerability and he was expressing it by being willing to have his teeth broken whilst caving in some other guy's head. And he, you know, he, he won the fight. He fought, fought well. And, you know, but what was he connecting to? A really deep connection of being willing to dial up vulnerability in that moment. And that's expressed by standing closer to your opponent. So it doesn't really matter what the value is, is what I'm trying to say by this story. It's taking that and then translating it into a really granular behavioural output that you can relate to and you go, cool, there's, there's my values in action and if I do that, I'll feel like I'm being the best version of myself and that's what life's about so I want to get after that. So now I'm focusing on something that's really meaningful to me and it's less actually about the context, the outcome, the scoreboard or whatever is going on. I've got something that sort of supersedes that. Mm. I imagine as well for someone who, like I haven't done that work, like I feel... 
like I've got my values there without having them on paper. I've got them there, but I definitely need to go through that and have work because what that would do, I imagine for anyone that's got that, like yourself or an athlete in that time, it would give that person so much clarity as well on what actually needs to be done. So decision-making around, you know, is this the right thing for me or do I really want to do this or what do I do when I'm pressed or I'm stressed or I'm nervous? It's like, there's a trigger to go straight back to those values. Cam Smith didn't have to worry what he was going to do on the final day at the British Open. I was there. You were there. I was there on the 17th. I have to tell you this story. I was there on the 17th um, hole, which yep. for anyone who watched that, that, um, that comp, you know, around the scores, he was basically, I think at that stage, even with Rory. Yep. He was in front, hit his ball into this green, which is traditionally one of the hardest holes on the course. Landed in a terrible spot, like absolutely terrible spot. There was this massive bunker that, you know, you could only, I was literally opposite him. Like you could only see half of his body coming over. And he's, he was so calm in the way he just walked up to it, looked at it, you know, almost in a way boring. Like it was boring to watch because I was like, how, you know, he's just so calm. Like he was just so calm the way he did it. And he putted it over this hill, unbelievable, walked up to it again, did his same routine, made one of the most clutch putts I've ever seen, ever seen. Then coming through, I saw Rory. Now, not to comment about Rory, I don't know what happened, but he hit this amazing shot in, like amazing shot into the green, um, close apart in a great spot, no break really in the green at all, and then missed the putt. And in my head, I was thinking, what was the difference between those two plays on that day? I wouldn't have a clue because I don't work with Rory, but I'm going to debunk a critical thing that you just said. Yes. Cam was so nervous in those final five holes, he couldn't swallow water. He talks about this funny moment where he reached for the water bottle and we do some stuff with mindfulness and resetting and having a sip and all the usual grounding stuff and he nearly choked to death on international TV because his throat wouldn't swallow. <laughs> That's how nervous he was, right? Because he's human. He knew the score. He knew this context. He knew it was a major. He knew he was going to live. He knew the whole setting. He's not an idiot and it mattered to him. He could hear the roaring of the crowd behind who were following Rory, so he knew the scorecard was coming. He knew the context. So he was super, super nervous. So I want you to understand that. Have I not learned anything today? <laughs> oh, like that was just so – that was unbelievable. But what he was was he was composed. Yes. And committed. And competent. And consistent to his competency. So, you know, the morning of when he and I would meet for breakfast like we always do and let's go, what's our plan here? The plan was our usual plan. Don't change. What separates him from guys in the rest of the world is he's probably one of the best clients I've ever worked with at not changing when the rest of us probably would. Mm. He, he took the same start line, same targets, same shots, same what have you, even though his brain probably wanted to club down, play safe, decelerate, steer this one, just bring it home, whatever story is showing up in, in the brain. And unwaveringly, the answer to that is I just play my values in action. This is how I play golf. But it frees people up. Like I said, you don't go to bed at night going, oh, I wonder what I need to do tomorrow. It's I know what I'll bring to the equation. That doesn't guarantee the scorecard's going to be your friend. Golf's hard. He might not have hit the ball well but he knew what he was going to bring to it, i.e. him, his values in action, the best version of himself, and therefore let's get after it. The, the, the best shot, 
early on, so I worked with Ken for four years. Mm. He was 65 in the world. We got to number two. The best shot was when he was playing in a playoff about two and a half years ago. So they go back to the 18th hole and he hits it in the water. OB, bang, in the piss. And everyone's like, what? He, he, he stuffed up or he choked or he, he can't believe he lost, you know. No, because he took the same line that he'd been taking on day one, two, three and four and he teed it up and went after it. He wasn't playing Superman golf. He wasn't playing, you know, scared golf. He just took his normal, you know, relatively aggressive line, but his normal golf. And he didn't put a good swing on it. And I debriefed and he's like, no, mate, it was the right shot, right, you know, right target, right everything. I just, you know, didn't hit it well. And I knew in that moment that it was more important for him to stay true to how he dissects a golf course than playing the situation in the context. The other guy hit a three wood, club down, went left, made par, won the tournament. Awesome. He's also still number 80 in the world. You know, Cam went on to become number two in the world because he was willing to keep playing the right brand of golf, not the context. That's incredible. That is seriously really, it's unbelievable to go into that, um, that behind the scenes look because even, you know, after everything was spoken about today, knowing what I know, I, I should have known how nervous he would have been. But like, <laughs> it just looks, it did right. look like he was so yeah. calm. Like it looked yeah. like he just knew what he was doing. He had his sort of thing under, under his thing. But yeah, literally talking about what's going on today, it's not what you feel, it's still it's what you do. He's very, all my clients hopefully get to a place of being good at accepting that nerves is the price of entry. Mm. You want to lead the British Open at St Andrews on the 150th, probably going to feel some emotion, right? Mm. And if he was trying to calm himself down and not be nervous, we introduced this thing called cognitive dissonance where your mind and your eyes aren't aligned. So if he's in his head trying to calm himself down, bracket, and failing, and he's meant to be engaged in this shot, trying to see it, see the flight, see the landing zone, thinking about the release, trying to read the break, whatever, there's no way he can do that to that degree of specificity if he's in his head trying to control his nerves by going, yes, of course I'm nervous and that's okay and made room for that, it just frees him up to then actually focus on the task at hand. Unbelievable. The sports like golf and tennis, for example, I've always had such admiration for because from coming from a team sport, it's very quick. You don't have a lot of time to sometimes have those decisions. You're just sort of doing rather than thinking a lot of the time. Whereas, you know, I play golf now casually could use a lot of these hacks, um, a lot of these um, tangible skills. So, but you have so much time to think in there. Do you think, do you feel that's an advantage or a disadvantage or is it both? Uh, complex question. Uh, certainly we know that individual sports as well. Yeah. So discrete sport. So where there's lots of stoppage definitely gives us more time to ruminate, you know, think, worry, tangle ourselves up. So I find that, um, Sports like golf are probably, and tennis, yeah, are definitely ones where we're more prone to get distracted by our internal content versus, you know, continuous sports where, like you said, once the ball's rolling in front of you, you're not deep in thought, you're just sort of in doing mode. Mm. But then I know that every midfielder I've worked with, that at every stoppage, at every time there's a goal kicked, every time there's something, there's time to, you know, get a little bit bogged down. So it's it does change. But, yeah, some of those more continuous sports, once you're in there, it's a little easier just to stay task-focused, definitely, which is why I think you see, you know, there's a lot more sports psychologists on the golf tours, motorsport, tennis tours, 
um, just given that it probably does make you a little bit more vulnerable to getting caught up in that. But something like uh, motorsport you'd think is a continuous sport, but it's not really. It's, it's, it's continuous, but you're setting up corner chicanes, sectors, and you're sort of going through them almost like a golf sort of shot in a way. You're trying to set up entry point, you know, breaking apex. So it's um, there's, you know, really interesting sports where it's a, it's a, it's a blend. Yeah. Mm. Um, if, if you're allowed to talk about this, and, and please, if you're not, don't obviously there's client relations, but we've spoken about Cam. What's your ongoing look like with him working now that he is doing live? Like, will you be travelling with him? Like, what's how how big is that workload, and how sort of consistent is that for for you guys to work together with a professional athlete like him? Yeah, sure. It it, it varies on the work that's needed. Um, but Cam and I sort of see each other about every four weeks, four or five weeks. Jump on a plane and. Um, once I get my head around the new schedule and the new tour, there's a few things, you know, there's obviously, I think there's only eight tournaments this year. There's 14 or 15 or 17 or something next year. So we'll work through the schedule. But um, my job is to build independence, not interdependence or dependence, yeah. right? Like, like teach a man to fish. Yeah, literally, yeah. literally, right? And that's one of his superpowers is he's really self-governed. And so um, all of my clients, I like to front end the work, get a lot done early on to build the fundamentals and then, yeah, empower them to to do that uh, on their own. Uh, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll be on a plane a fair bit next year um, in, around the world, and, and also in Australia, which is pretty cool. I can imagine the answer to this already from what we spoke today. I have learned things contrary to disbelief before, but I imagine the change from live to PGA, nothing changes. No, same. Identical. It's boring. Same. He he's a very good competitor. He loves the he loves the competition, but he's also not a golfer. He's a human. He's Cam. Mm. He's more of a rev head and a fisher fisherman than he is a golfer. So you know, like golf's what he does. It's not who he is. So that also doesn't change. So everyone's caught up in the story and the narrative and the media, and it's like, you know, he's he's very clear in who he is as a human, and he's clear about the life he wants to live and spend more time with people that matter and time in Australia with his family and doing the things that he loves. So, you know, that stuff's really cool that this new opportunity probably allows him to do more of that. Mm. Um, but yeah, as from a, from a golf standpoint, well, he just won this morning, right? He just yeah. won his, his, his <laughs> second, <laughs> second tournament and he just, just walked away with the, with the trophy. So, um, you know, you'll, you'll never quieten down his competitive spirit. Unbelievable. Going to, from individual sport to team sport, where does that differ? I heard a quote once from Daniel Ricciardo, which I really, I, I loved what he said in this and it's interesting to get your opinion. And he was saying about in individual sport, when you have a good day, you know, you, you know, you, you win because you've governed that decision in team sport. You can have the best day and you can lose and you can have a really bad game and you can win. Yeah. Does that come how does that work into sports psychology? Is that, is that something that you work with with teams? Like is it something that comes up with players a lot? It does come up a lot because um, it works in both directions though, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, you normally find people complaining when they're out there playing well and the team didn't win. It's like, hang on, remember the day you didn't play well and the team did? So we yeah. often, we often yeah, <laughs> yeah. park that memory. Yeah. Um, but again, it comes back to what you value. Mm. What do you actually rate your performance on? And what's really important to you? So... You know, we go out there to win. You know, sport is about competition. That's what's great about it. Like it's okay to, to pursue outcomes. But if your evaluation of your performance is really clearly defined around your values in action, then that's what you rate. 
So that becomes more of what you value at the end. It's did I play true to me and my values and my role for the team and we got the chocolates, that's a great day. You've played well, you've played your role, you've played to your values and we won. That's where you feel awesome because it's the perfect, you know, marriage. It's more the buffering of when the team maybe hasn't played well, but you're saying, I still played my role, I played to my values and I brought what I could to that equation. Mm. It means you go home at night feeling the, you know, the the disappointment of loss, but not the not the regret or the anguish that of underperformance. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I I try to help my clients just be more stable. If you can just show up and play really well, consistently and stable, then you can normally be a bit kinder to yourself, right, even Mm. when the team hasn't had a great season. I suppose even the question that more holistically as well is like when you're coaching an individual that's for their sport, individual sport, when you're coaching a team as a whole team – how important is that to then get like, or, you know, or a business or whatever that is to get a collective um, buy-in for, for language and be able to all keep each other accountable to those things? Like when have you seen that work best in a team sporting environment? What, what, what are the best teams do? Yeah, well, there is that, there is that buy-in, right? Yeah. So, so you, you already answered that. That's, it's about... Um, is it uh, messaging uh, from like the coaching and stuff as well? Is that like where... where yeah, leadership best? matters, right? Yeah. Top-down matters. Like it really matters because it, it, you set the tone, you set the expectations um, and you don't want that that conflict where, you know, I've seen many a coach say, we're going to be about, you know, our vision and our values and we're going to, you know, have a culture that's founded on that and then all they care about is the win-loss and the, and the you know, the, the, the handballs. Yeah. You played your role. No, the champion data says you didn't get as many, you know, numbers here versus actually looking at what the performance was. So you've got to be really careful that because athletes will see right through that, don't they? Like all they care about is you playing your role and then they hold the statistics up at the end of the game and all they care about is the statistics, not the role playing. And you're like, hmm, <laughs> hmm Okay. I mean, the whole dressing room picks up on it. Yeah. So, you know, for all the coaches listening, if you're going to actually say one thing, be congruent to that. But to your question, what do the best teams do? Yeah, they have a shared vision. They have clearly defined values, not outcomes, values, and then really explicit behaviours about what that is, you know, in action, and we all get after that. And remember, accountability is celebrating the desired behaviour. So I'll take a little segue when I'm teaching my kid to ride a bike, I'm being hyper accountable by going, good, yes, pedal, steer, keep going, keep going, quicker, move, whatever. I'm shaping the desired behavior. That's accountability. I don't yell at my four-year-old saying, oh, that was no good, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. That's easy to call out the aberrant behavior. The guy eating the pie in the MCG can see when you didn't land the tackle. Like mm. identifying the wrong behavior is easy, right? shaping the desired is what good coaching's about. And so that's why you want, you know, great cultures that are founded on a vision that's really clear, some values and behaviours that fall out of that, and then leadership that reinforces and holds you to account the desired behaviours. And that's when you normally see a shift in team performance because it's then resilient to when pressure comes. Because otherwise when pressure comes we'll all get very individualistic. We'll all just think about our role, our, our own world, our own statistics, our own what have you, because we get into preservation mode where we don't want to have the, the coach blasting us in, in the review on Monday. And that's when all those human synergistics and interdependencies break down, you know, like, like a whole bunch of individuals running around versus, you know, team dynamics. 
before we get into the business world, just lastly on the sport, yeah. if you had to pick out there, if there even, even is an answer to this, what is the hardest sport to obviously maintain and be really good at both physically and mentally? Is there a sport out there that you mm-hmm. could could choose? I get asked that all the time. Um, that's good. The good questions here today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, that's a, it's a tough one. And I don't really think there is. I, I know there's just some – they just present – different challenges Challenges, and that's not me sitting on the fence like I think golf is exceptionally hard from a psychological standpoint because it's such a fine motor control right like it's you know half a degree of club face being not square with the velocity that they're swinging clubs these days you know it really amplifies the error and you're going to you know you're going to spray it um motorsport you know I've done 18 years of v8s I've worked with you know Le Mans and Porsche and world championships and things there. And like just looking at what is required to get two tenths of a second is pretty amazing to stay really composed and metronomic as the tires change, as the track temperatures change, as the wind changes, as the fuel load gets lighter, like the whole car is constantly changing and you're having to, you know, hit braking markers and apexes and look at your throttle modulation and braking and all of that. And literally what's separating you from first to maybe, you know, sixth is two-tenths of a second across three kilometres. That's pretty cool. Well, that's a really fun challenge mm. to work with the human brain in that moment and how do we sort of optimise it. They're, they're probably the two more extreme individual sports that I think put a lot of load psychologically. Uh, and then in team sports, you know, uh, it's generally the larger the numbers and the more chaotic the environment. So AFL would unquestionably be quite a challenging sport given that it's not in a rectangle field. It's still an invasion sport. The ball isn't round and you've got to hire, you know, 18 people is a lot more than virtually any sport in the world, right? So you've got a lot of moving parts. So, you know, the, the, the variables just go up as you increase the amount of um, complexity. Yep. Speaking on before, you were just talking about team sports, AFL in general, um, and then a lot of stuff you're doing at the moment, which I know takes up a lot of your time when you do have time, is being um, seeked out by businessmen and women and entrepreneurs, um, people that have high pressure, big jobs, stressful jobs that need to make big decisions. Do you enjoy this work? And is it similar to working with athletes? What's like? Is it the same sort of trends that pop up in this work? Yeah, great question. And first, I, I, I just love working with humans doing yeah. hard things, right? Um, so a lot of my time, yeah, is tech founders, like, you know, founders, CEOs, carrying the burden of trying to pursue something really hard and really, really interesting, but also having the burden of uh, 300 staff or 1,000 staff or, you know, one of my clients has a team of 40,000 staff. Like, it's a you know, there's a burden that comes with that because you need to – feel like you need to, you know, achieve and succeed. And it's a pretty cutthroat world when you've got rival companies trying to, you know, literally undermine you or short your stock or, you know, buy, you know, acqui- you know acquire certain things. And, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty volatile out there. Um, but what I do like is connecting them to decision-making. So, you know, it's less of a motor output like hitting a – wedge in the goal for a kicking a goal in, in footy. It's more, how do I relate to my people? So how do I lead my exec team or how do I manage the board? Or I'm really getting frozen by, do I do decision A or decision B, which has massive implications potentially for the direction of the company. 
and making room for that and, you know, yeah, freeing them up to be, to connect to their native genius because they're obviously very, very good at things. Mm. They've got some really high competency in whatever domain and so my job is to just get them out of their own way, right, free their brain up from their fear, their doubt, their their stories so they can get back to that, you know. And so I like that challenge. Um and, 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 yeah, and seeing them do interesting things of taking businesses from that startup sort of phase through to, you know, you know, the stock exchange or whatever they want to do with their goals is, is interesting in terms of just the pure pursuit of outcome. But what I actually love doing is helping them as humans mm. and saying you can have it all. You can run a, a billion-dollar company and still have a work-life balance and still look after your health and fitness and still be a good friend, brother and partner or husband or wife it just means you've got to architect your life and you've got to be pretty intentional in what you do and you've got to make sure you're not getting caught up in your hooks and derailing. So we do a lot of that stuff around their values in action and, and, and all the stuff we've spoken about today um, because it's um, – I think that's what enjoyment in life is. It's doing hard things, right? Unbelievable. Do you – I can imagine you being a very, very um, – I know how busy you are, man, because it's taken us a long time to, to catch up because you're just jet-setting everywhere. Do you have scope to work with other people? Is there, is there people out there that you've – even athletes in general or other people that you go, like, I'd love to work with these sort of people? Yeah, there's always I, – I always sort of have a philosophy, say yes, and then work out how to do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it. It's – as long as it's just a mutual buy-in to solving a puzzle, you know, like – I'm getting better at saying no to things that I don't think I'll bring value to. Yeah. Like, so my core values, mastery, curiosity, playfulness, and value. And it's like, I want to do things where I know that I'm creating value for my clients and bringing value to that, you know, that pursuit. Mm. Well, I really respect that because I don't know if this was a part of it before we even had the pod, you know, I inquired about it coming. I was like, I'd love to talk to you about this. And you're like, well, let's set up a meeting first and see if it's actually the right thing to do. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, well, why would I bring value? Why would I come on this show if it's not going to bring value? Right. Have to. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've never done that before, but I was like, sort of like, oh, fuck, what am I, what am I doing here? Like, do I have to say something? But it was just more of a sound and go, is this actually going to work? Like, let's not waste each other's time if this isn't going to be yep. valuable for people. Yeah. Yeah. And I get asked to do things from certain people that might have a checkbook and want to throw money at a problem. And I'm like, it's not going to bring me to life. I'm not going to be the best for, you know, that's not really where I want to play anymore. And therefore you say no, right? Because you've got to be congruent to what I'm trying to do with my clients. I can't, you know, not be the same with myself. Mm. What's, do you set goals? Do you set targets? Is there something that you want to achieve? Like what's next for you? Where do you, where do you want to go with this? Wow. I haven't been asked that before. That's cool. Um, first, first new question. There you go. <laughs> um, I set outcomes, performance goals, and process goals to a point. Mine these days are less around stereotypical career aspirational goals. I've ticked nearly everything in terms of I wanted to work at, you know, the Olympics and I've gone to multiple Olympics. I wanted to go to world champ, done that, you know, win, whatever, like be part of those teams. Um, so that doesn't mean I don't want to keep doing that work. I just find it's not about what necessarily the outcome is. It's about the puzzle to solve. Mm. And I'm, I'm certainly drawn to complexity and challenge. So hence why if it's something of meaning on the table and there's a decent puzzle or challenge to solve that normally brings out the best in me so I'm, I, I sort of am open to that and then I'm also trying to do stuff that gives me 
the right balance of the things that matter. So work-life balance as well. So I've got two young kids and I'm, you know, I'm really committed to being a present dad. So hence why I don't live, you know, full-time in America or other countries where I probably could easily and probably justifiably earn more money and all those metrics. But um, I like to do work that allows me to still be the dad I want to be as well as, you know, get on a plane and, and go work with interesting people pursuing complex things. Love it. Love it. Jonah, it's been absolutely incredible catching up today. I, I really do genuinely appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. Um, I know the incredible things you're doing and yeah, just blessed to, blessed to have you on. I've seriously learnt um, so much. I'm going to be listening back and, and taking some notes because there's definitely some things that I think everyone listening today can take from, which has been incredible. I love how tangible those lessons have been. So I cannot honestly thank you enough for your time. Um, hopefully we can stay connected and and keep in touch and um, I'll make sure I'll hit you up when I'm over in the States at the Phoenix Open we'll catch up for a beer then perfect thanks for having me cheers mate thanks for listening to another Producey podcast if you enjoyed the show that'd be a massive help if you could like follow rate subscribe tap the bell leave a review or even share with one of your friends or you could do them all if you want to get in touch to share feedback suggest a guest or advertise with one of our podcasts then email hello at Producey.com thanks for tuning in IllyXX KO's got you covered for this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. AFL, here we go. Carlton versus Melbourne with no ad breaks during play. That is going to be an absolute banger. Last time these two uh, got together, well, not the last time, when I was there, I kicked three. Freo versus Swans, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. And the Hawks versus Saints, live with no ad breaks during play, is going to be an absolute blockbuster. It's a must win for both of these teams. And don't forget the NBA playoffs. Gee whiz, they are going off at the moment. So many big games to mention, and they will be absolutely enthralling. Watch every game live with both Eastern and Western conferences live with ESPN on KO. There's absolutely plenty of room for everyone, so get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble.